If you would, please take your Bibles and turn with me to Genesis chapter 28. I will be in Genesis 28 this morning. So in Genesis 28, we'll see Jacob being sent away from his family. And so let's look to the text. Genesis 28, Moses writes to us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he says, So Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and charged him and said to him, You shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. Arise and go to Paddan Aram to the house of Bethuel, your your mother's father. And from there, take to yourself a wife from the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May he also give you the blessing of Abraham to you and your descendants with you, that you may possess the land of your sojournings, which God gave to Abraham. Then Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Paddan Aram to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, the mother of Jacob and Esau. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Paddan Aram to take a wife from there, and that when he blessed him, he charged him, saying, You shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and had gone to Paddan Aram. So Esau saw that the daughters of Canaan displeased his father Isaac. And Esau went to Ishmael and married, besides the wives that he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth. Then Jacob departed from Beersheba and went toward Haran. He came to a certain place and spent the night there because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of the place and put it under his head and lay down in that place. He had a dream. And behold, a ladder was set on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give it to you and to your descendants. Your descendants will also be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and in you and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. He was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So Jacob rose early in the morning and took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on its top. He called the name of that place Bethel. However, previously the name of the city had been Luz. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me on this journey that I take and will give me food to eat and garments to wear, and I return to my father's house in safety, then the Lord will be my God. This stone, which I have set up as a pillar, will be God's house, and of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth. 
to you. Now, as we consider this chapter this morning, we'll consider it under two main headings. First of all, receive the promises of God. And then secondly, respond to the promises of God. Receive the promises of God and respond to the promises of God. So, Genesis 28 obviously follows directly on the heels of chapter 27. And we saw last week how at the end of chapter 27, Esau had borne a grudge against his brother Jacob because of the stolen blessing and planned to murder him after Isaac had died. Rebecca caught wind of the plan and knew she needed to get Jacob out of harm's way. And so, in order to do that, she brought up this issue of marriage, right? The marriage of Esau to two Hittite women, Judith and Basemath, had been uh, related back at the end of chapter 26. It had also been stated there that these two women brought grief to Isaac and Rebekah. And so, at the end of chapter 27, Rebekah reiterates this grief that she has with these Canaanite women that are Esau's wives, and she poses a question to Isaac that's well-suited to get Isaac to do what she wants him to do, namely to get Jacob out of there. And so she says there at the end of chapter 27, I am tired of living because of the daughters of Heath. If Jacob takes a wife from the daughters of Heath like these, from the daughters of the land, what good will my life be to me? It's a pretty tense situation for a woman to anticipate concerning the marriage of her son. And that question, of course, leads directly to what we see here in chapter 28. Isaac, verses 1 through 4, charges Jacob not to take a wife from the daughters of Canaan, but instead to go back to Rebekah's brother, Laban, and to take a wife from Laban's daughters. And what is quite significant here in what Isaac says to Jacob is that which is found in verses 3 and 4. Here he explicitly reiterates and confirms the Abrahamic blessing to him. He says, May God Almighty bless you, and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May he also give you the blessing of Abraham to you and your descendants with you, that you may possess the land of your sojournings, which God gave to Abraham. Now, last week, chapter 27, we saw that Isaac was deceived about Jacob's identity when he pronounced the blessing upon him. But now, he explicitly gives the Abrahamic blessing to Jacob. He knew that Jacob was the rightful recipient of the blessing, and here he confirms that which he had said, albeit in ignorance, back in chapter 27. And now he sends Jacob away to get a wife. And then in verses 6 through 9, we see the response of Esau. Esau has shown up as a on the one hand, a senseless man, right? He doesn't value uh, his birthright. He sold that to Jacob for a mess of stew. Here he shows up rather senseless again. He understands why Jacob is being sent away because these Hittite women are displeasing to Isaac and Rebekah. And so in an attempt to now try to regain his father's approval after Isaac had already given the blessing to Jacob and had confirmed it and reconfirmed it, you might say, Nevertheless, he still tries to get back in to his father's good graces. And he thinks, okay, well, maybe if I marry one of my cousins too, then that will alleviate the problem. So instead of taking a wife from the Hittites and the Canaanites, he marries now a third time 
one who is the daughter of Ishmael, thinking, okay, now I'm not married, or well, in addition to being married to Canaanite women, I am also married to an Ishmaelite woman. Surely that will that'll help. Obviously, the text gives us no insight as to what the response of Isaac and Rebekah was to this, but I think we are right to look at this and shake our heads at Esau and say, you, you just don't get it, do you? You have no spiritual sense at all. You don't understand the situation. It was too late for him on multiple levels. The ship had already sailed. Now, beginning in verse 10, we see Jacob traveling from Beersheba to Haran, and along the way he camps out for the night, placing a stone under his head. Now, that's not my choice of pillow. When we camped out here a week ago, I didn't want a stone under my head, but apparently this, this was how it was done. And uh, so Jacob takes a stone, lays it under his head, and he dreams as he slept. This encouraging dream, the content of which is found in verses 12 and follows. And what he sees there is, is a ladder stretching from earth to heaven and the angels of God ascending and descending on that ladder. It's in this way that God is revealing to Jacob his connection with the world and his control over the created order. The Lord God is the creator of all. And as the creator, he did not simply, as some have said, take the watch Make it, wind it up, set it into motion, and have no more control over it. He didn't take his hands off. He is active and involved in the world, and he employs the heavenly host to do his bidding in the world. And so Hebrews 1.7, quoting from Psalm 104, verse 4, tells us that the Lord makes his angels winds and his ministers flames of fire. And we see at various times in Scripture the Lord's use of the heavenly host. You might recall that incident in 2 Kings chapter 6 where Elisha and his servant were in the city of Dothan and the city was surrounded by the Aramean army. The, the king of, of Aram had gotten onto the fact that he, Elisha was, uh, was aiding the king of Israel and so he wanted to get to Elisha, sent his army to where he was. Elisha's servant goes out early in the morning and says, Alas, my master, what shall we do? He sees the army and like, what are we going to do? And Elisha answers and said, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And he prayed and asked the Lord to open the servant's eyes. And we're told, 2 Kings 6, 17, The Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. This was the heavenly host of angels sent there by the Lord to protect Elisha, to guarantee his safety and security. Similarly, we could think of, uh, of the later chapters of the book of Daniel. Daniel. We could think of how the angel Gabriel came to Daniel and gave him insight and understanding in regard to the vision of the, the ram and the goat in Daniel chapter 8 and in regard to the 70 weeks in Daniel chapter 9. And then, it's a tricky text, but Daniel 10 and 11, we see the, the issue of angelic warfare, right? Daniel 10, 13, we read this, but the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me, this is the angel speaking to Daniel, was withstanding me for 21 days. And then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. And I had been left there with the kings of Persia. Later on, that same chapter, the beginning of chapter 11, but I shall now return to fight against the prince of Persia. So I am going forth. And behold, the prince of Greece is about to come. However, I will tell you what is inscribed in the writing of truth. 
Yet there is no one who stands firmly with me against these forces except Michael your prince. In the first year of Darius the Mede, I arose to be an encouragement and a protection for him. Now, I want to be real careful in handling difficult texts like Daniel 10 and Daniel 11. We're talking about the, the, the prince of Persia and uh, the prince of Greece and so on. Michael, this angel that's speaking to Daniel. But from what I've been able to gather, the most common view is that those references to the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece is to is in fact references to demons who are at work in those geographical realms. That seems to be the most common and I would say most probable explanation. And the implication given by that, what the angel was saying there to Daniel about his own activity and the activity of Michael is that there is some intense spiritual warfare that is taking place. Just think Ephesians 6, right? We struggle not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the world forces of this darkness. And so it appears that what we have in Daniel there is a reference to the angels of God doing God's bidding in the world. And we see a glimpse of that here, typified and symbolized in Jacob's dream. Right? We see these, these angels ascending and descending, receiving commandments from the Lord, going out to execute his will on the earth, putting the Lord's will into practice. And thus the latter serves as a, as a symbol of God's sovereign and providential control over the earth. He rules over all, and as we find in Ephesians 1, works all things after the counsel of his will. And this was meant to, to encourage Jacob that God was in control, and therefore he was able to help Jacob and able to work with him for his good. And what the Lord symbolized there in the vision, he announces in verses 13 through 15. Look, look there to the word of the Lord in verses 13 through 15. Behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give it to you and your descendants. Your descendants also will be like the dust of the earth. And you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and I will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. And let's notice, let's notice a few things here. This, this is very significant, this, uh, this word from the Lord to Jacob in verses 13 through 15. For one, we see the Lord himself now pronouncing upon Jacob the blessing that Isaac had already given him. We saw how up earlier in the chapter, verses 3 and 4, that Isaac had pronounced the Abrahamic blessing on Jacob. And now the Lord himself gives that promise to him. Just as the Lord had appeared to Abraham, just as the Lord had appeared to Isaac back in chapter 26, now also the Lord appears to Jacob and confirms the giving of the promise. And you can see the various elements of the Abrahamic promise in the Lord's words here. You see on the one hand, verse 13, the promise of the land. The land was promised to Abraham, land was promised to Isaac, land is promised here now to Jacob also. In verse 14, there's the promise of the numerous descendants, like the dust of the earth. And at the end of verse 14, there is, most importantly, the messianic promise. That word, in you and in your descendants, that is, in your seed, 
shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And you'll notice there at the end of verse 14 that there is, as it were, the combination of the original Abrahamic promise of Genesis 12:3 combined with the promise of Genesis 22:18 after Abraham had offered up Isaac on the altar. And so Genesis 12:3 says, "In you all the families of the earth will be blessed." And you see a hint of that there in verse 14 at the end. In you and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. In Genesis 22:18, the Lord had said to Abraham, "In your seed all nations of the earth will be blessed. And verse 14 here in our text combines both of those. In you and in your descendants, in your seed, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And it's quite worthy of our notice that in Galatians, Galatians chapter 3, Paul uses both Genesis 12, 3 and Genesis 22, 18 and applies them to the gospel, applies them to Christ. And both of those things, as we've seen, are here in verse 14. And so in Galatians chapter 3, Paul, uh, Galatians 3.8, is referring back to Genesis 12.3, where he says, the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all nations will be blessed in you. And then just a few verses later, Galatians 3.16, Paul is referring back to Genesis 22.18, saying, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is, Christ. And the point in all of this is that since these promises to Abraham in Genesis 12 and in Genesis 22 are clearly, According to Paul, Galatians 3, pointing to Christ as the one through whom the world would be blessed, pointing ahead to the justification of the Gentiles by faith in Christ. Even so, the reiteration of those two promises here to Jacob are messianic through and through, just as much as they were when they were first given to Abraham. The messianic promise, the gospel preached beforehand, is here in the second half of verse 14. And we should praise God for that. Hallelujah. We, Gentiles, originally strangers and aliens to the covenants and the promises of God, are now, through Christ, fellow citizens of the, with the saints and belong to God's household. Now, we who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ and are united with all believing Israel to form one new man, as we find in Ephesians chapter 2. We who were by nature... A wild olive tree are now grafted in contrary to nature to the cultivated olive tree of the people of God, according to Romans 11.24. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Man, is the Son of Abraham and the Son of David. And praise be to God that it was too small a thing for him merely to raise up the tribes of Jacob and restore the preserved ones of Israel but rather he was made a light to the nations so that the salvation of the Lord would reach to the ends of the earth. As Isaiah says, Isaiah 49, 6. The Abrahamic promise, which is here given to Jacob, is good news for all of the peoples of the world because all families of the world are blessed through Jacob and through the seed of Jacob because some men, some women from all families of the earth will be redeemed through Christ. This, brothers and sisters, is the good news of the gospel. 
We are born into this world as sinners, therefore under a curse, because we are sinful in, uh, in our birth, and we have not obeyed God. But God, in his great mercy, has made a way for sinners to be redeemed. He has worked out a plan so that we need not remain estranged from him, but can return to fellowship with him. And Jesus Christ, the seed of Jacob, is that way. It is through him that all of the nations of the earth are blessed. And if you have more questions about this good news of Jesus, the way of salvation, the forgiveness of sins, new life in him, what it means that you can be a part of what is spoken here of all the families of the earth being blessed through the descendant of Jacob? If you have questions about that, talk to me. We would love to share with you more about what it means to, to know Christ and be blessed through him. And then in verse 15, we find a particular promise of God given to Jacob in this season of life. He says to him there, Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go, and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done for you what I have promised you. Now, why would words like that be significant for Jacob, and particularly meaningful to him in this season of life? I think that's, that's an important question to think about. It's true that Jacob is being sent on an errand to get a wife. Right? That's, that's true enough. But... We need to remember, he's also, in a way, running for his life right now. He's running from an older brother who was planning to murder him as soon as their father died. And Jacob, so it seems, is going forth from his mother and father, who are a wealthy family. We've seen the wealth of Isaac. He's going away from them, not as a wealthy son with a, a large entourage. He's walking this whole way, it seems, and Seems like he's got the cloak he's wearing and a staff in his hand, not much more. In Genesis 32:10, Jacob essentially made that point in prayer when he said, "With my staff only, I crossed this Jordan." And he contrasted it with him coming back to the land with his with his family. He says, "Now I've become two companies." In other words, though he is the heir of this, this great promise and blessing, though his mother and father are quite wealthy. At the time of this vision in Genesis 28, he's essentially a fugitive with a cloak on his back and a staff in his hand. But yet the Lord shows up and gives this man on the run, a man sent away from his immediate family, a man who has to flee to a place he has never been before. The Lord shows up and gives him a vision in which his sovereign control over all of the earth is symbolized Angels ascending and descending on the ladder, doing God's bidding. And then the Lord gives to Jacob not only the Abrahamic promises, but also that specific and personal promise of verse 15, that he is with Jacob and that he will keep him wherever he goes, that he will not leave him until he has done all things that he had promised him. Now, what an encouragement this would be for someone who is running for his life and going out essentially with nothing, what an encouragement this will be that God's with me. God's promised me these great things. He's not going to leave me. He's not going to abandon me until he's done everything that he has promised. And indeed, even though uh, it's phrased as it is, I will not leave you, 
until I have done what I have promised you, I think we need to understand that certainly this promise means that the Lord would never leave him. It's not that I'm going to do all these things and then I will abandon you. That's, that's not at all what is, what is being promised here. What's being promised is the Lord's continual intention to be with Jacob, to give, fulfill these promises, and giving him the certainty of his presence. And this, no doubt, would have been an encouragement uh, to Jacob, given his situation in life right here. And though these words of verse 15, as stated, are a particular promise to Jacob, Nevertheless, those words should turn our hearts toward very similar promises that belong to us in Christ. And so we read in Hebrews 13, 5 and 6, Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you, so that we confidently may say, The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? When we ourselves feel that we have nothing in this world, if we feel broke, poor, if we are in Christ, in one sense we have all that we need. We have the light of his presence to go with us. Christ has promised the disciples, Matthew 28, 20, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He's given to us the gift of the Holy Spirit, John 14, 16 and 17. I will ask the Father... And he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see him or know him. But you know him, because he abides with you and will be in you. Our God has promised to be with us. And therefore, we don't need to be afraid or alarmed. When life is hard, when circumstances are difficult, when we see our own sins or we see the sins of others against us, and we might be tempted to wonder how we can press on. I know that in the difficulty of life, sometimes we do feel like, how can I press on? And when we feel that way, that's when we need to press in to these promises which are given to us by God. When we see our own sins and the depth of our own depravity, the, the weakness of our faith on the one hand, and then see the strength of the world, the flesh, and the devil arrayed against us on the other hand, we may well wonder how we can continue persevering through this life, continuing to trust in Christ, and continuing to walk with him in obedience. And when we start thinking in that way, we need to look to the word of God and the promises which are found there. We should look to places like 1 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9, where we are told that the Lord will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, through whom you were called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Despite our weakness, despite our sin and our proneness to fall, we have a great promise like Philippians 1, 6, which reminds us that he who began the good work is also faithful to carry that word unto completion, perfecting it in the day of Christ Jesus. And though our sanctification is so incomplete here in this life, our obedience to Christ is not what it ought to be. Our love toward God and our love toward the body of Christ is often cold, yet we have the assurance that God is not going to leave us. He's going to complete this work. First Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete 
without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who called you, he also will bring it to pass. God is faithful and he will fulfill these promises. And I trust you can see the point of connection. The Lord promised Jacob that he would be with him, that he would keep him, that he would bring him back, that he would not leave him until he had done all that he had promised. And though our situation as believers in Christ is somewhat different from that of the patriarch Jacob, nevertheless, we too have promises. Promises concerning the salvation and preservation of our souls. Promise concerning our sanctification. Promise concerning the Lord's presence with us. And we read in 2 Corinthians 1.20 that as many as are the promises of God in Him, that is, in Christ, they are yes. Just as it was with Jacob. If you are a believer in Christ, the Lord will not leave you until He has accomplished all that He has promised you, and He's not going to leave you then either. He will never leave you nor forsake you. He'll provide for our physical needs as He sees fit. He will provide for our spiritual needs. As we read this morning from 2 Peter 1, He has already given to us all that we need for life and godliness. And He will complete His work in us and bring us too to the promised land, which is our eternal inheritance, the new heavens and the new earth, in the presence of God and His Son. And so just as this vision and these promises of God were meant to be so encouraging and strengthening to Jacob in his flight as a fugitive, so must we take the corresponding promises which pertain to us. These promises are meant for our encouragement. They're meant to sustain us, to strengthen our faith and hope in God so that we can carry on in the struggle, so that we may contend against all of the enemies of our souls and continue walking with the Lord. And we need also to notice here in considering Jacob's vision that this latter not only symbolizes God's sovereign and providential dealings in the world, but it also serves in a way as a, as a type of our Lord Jesus Christ. We heard those words of the New Testament reading from our brother Jim this morning, First John, or excuse me, Gospel of John chapter 1, verse 51, where Jesus said to Nathanael, Truly I say to you, you will see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And by those words, Jesus is making an allusion back to this dream of Jacob here in chapter 28. It seems that in saying this to Nathanael, Jesus there in John 1 was not so much promising a vision like the one Jacob saw, so much as by his words promising a divinely sent confirmation that Jesus himself is the Son of God, that Jesus himself is the divine Son of Man. And indeed, such confirmation is immediately what followed. If you're tracking the, the history of the Gospel of John, the next thing that happens in the Gospel of John, as recorded there, was that wedding at Cana of Galilee, chapter 2, which was the beginning of his signs, which he did, and his disciples believed in him. John 2, 11. And so by speaking as he did there in John 1.51, Jesus is in a way telling us that he is the latter. He is the connecting link between heaven and earth, the one mediator between God and man. I think one writer helpfully expressed it when he says, the allusion in John 1.51 stresses that God is now even more involved with his people because the bridge between heaven and earth is not a ladder with angels on it, 
but is the Son of God Himself. The disciples will have the privilege of seeing for themselves the glory of God through the work of Jesus Christ. Jesus is called both the Son of God and Son of Man in this text because He is the bridge between heaven and earth. He has come to fulfill God's promises. And so we need to allow this vision of the latter and these promises that are here given to Jacob to point us to the promises which belong to us in Christ. And also, we need to let this vision point us to Christ himself, who is, who is the mediator, who is the way to God, the way, the truth, and the life. So we must receive the promises of God. We must look to them in our time of need. And that brings us then to our second point, which is to respond to the promises of God. We see Jacob's response here beginning in verse 16 and in what follows. Verse 16, he said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. In other words, he was not expecting to meet God there. And he is afraid. In other words, has the fear of God put into him. And he says, How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of of heaven, sets up the stone as a memorial and anoints it and names the place Bethel, which means the house of God. And then in verses 20 through 22, we see that Jacob makes a vow to the Lord. And in, in our English translations, usually it is translated as conditional, if God will be with me and keep me. But I don't, I don't think we should necessarily understand those words as if uh, there was some kind of doubtfulness on the part of Jacob, as if he were saying, well, if God does this, maybe he won't. We'll see. We'll wait and see. But if he does it, then yeah, sure. I, I think we should understand that the, the same word in the original that's often translated as the conditional if can also bear the sense sometimes of when. In other words, when God does these things, or seeing that. And uh, there, there are some places in the Old Testament when it is translated more along the lines of, of when. And so I don't think that we should see Jacob here as, as doubtful, but rather as trusting himself to God and binding himself to God by, by making this vow. Now, let's talk about the issue of vows. Vows like this are largely foreign from our experience. I think probably... Uh, what was going on here, and, and oftentimes in the Old Testament when we see uh, the people of God binding themselves to God by a vow, uh, I think the situation was helpfully summarized by one writer who said, in the midst of afflictions, the human spirit is encouraged to conceive some pious purpose of gratitude and betterment, but after deliverance, to forget it and often be drawn away by evil lusts to look back and to fall into something worse. In order, therefore, that the changeability of the human will might be held fast in a good, special, stronger bond of obligation and the carnal security, sloth, and evil inclinations of the flesh might be more strongly driven out, all contrived pretexts are cut off. They obligated themselves by a special vow or oath that they would render to God what also they owed otherwise, because they were commanded, in order that they might in this way carry about with them a constant reminder. Now, that is to say, Jacob here promises something that 
he owed to God anyways, right? God, as God, must be the God of Jacob. If Jacob is going to be faithful in any sense of the word, God must be his God. But yet, Jacob binds himself by this oath, almost as a way of reminding himself, God showed up here, and God has promised me these things, and seeing that he has promised me these things, therefore I must serve him. He must be my God. And certainly we see many examples of vows in the Old Testament times. The Old Testament law gives legislation in regard to the the regulation of vows, but I think we should note that we don't see quite so much of this taking place in the New Testament time. Now, there are a couple of instances in Acts, Acts 18.18, where Paul had cut his hair because he was keeping a vow. Uh, In Acts 21.23, James and the elders in Jerusalem spoke to Paul by saying, we have four men who are under a vow. And as much as the elders of the church of Jerusalem can say these are our men, we can, I think, safely assume these were Christian men who were under a vow. And uh, some of the historic confessional documents of the Christian church speak of vows. Westminster Confession, 1689, Baptist Confession, both have a section dealing with vows to the Lord. I think I would probably incline toward the opinion of John Gill, who uh, essentially said vows are free things. You can do them or not do them. But it's probably best not to do them. There's, there's, there's freedom to do them as long as it's something in accordance with the will of God and the word of God. But this can kind of entangle you. It doesn't seem to match up quite so well with the, the freedom that we have in Christ. But if you do make a vow, you need to make sure that you keep the vow. But even though I don't heartily recommend the practice of making vows to the Lord, I don't forbid it, but I don't heartily commend it. Nevertheless, I think we can learn something here from the piety of Jacob's example. Again, just think about what's going on here. Jacob received these great promises from God, and then in anticipation of the faithful fulfillment of them by the Lord, he resolves that the Lord will be his God. In other words, he resolves himself to serve God. And so it should be with us. Having received the promises of God in Christ, we ought to resolve in our hearts to serve the Lord with zeal and with sincerity. And this was very much in line with Paul's reasoning in in Romans chapter 12 when he said, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. In other words, we look at all that we have received in Christ, the grace, the mercy, the promises, and so on, The forgiveness of sins, the imputed righteousness of Christ, the beginning of our sanctification, the down payment of the Holy Spirit. When we see all of these things, we must present ourselves to the Lord and to serve him with everything that we are, taking him to be our God and we to be his people unto the end. And this should be all the more the case. In other words, we should all the more resolve to take the Lord for our God and to serve him with all that we are, like Jacob did, when we consider how much we resemble Jacob. As we've seen in past few chapters of Genesis, Jacob is not a particularly upright man. Jacob is given to lying, to scheming, to supplanting. And yet God in his grace comes to a man like that and gave him promises like the promises that we've seen here in this chapter. Isn't that the way that God operates? That he comes... To very wicked people, calls them, takes them, and makes them new. 
It was a saying that was attributed to Augustine that the grace of God does not find men fit for salvation. It doesn't find men fit for salvation, but makes them so. It takes us and makes us fit for salvation. And isn't that the truth with us? That the grace of God did not find you, did not find me fit for salvation. Rather, the grace of God came to us like it came to Jacob, in that it came to the unworthy. It came to those who were liars, to cheats, to those who hated God and hated others, came to us when we were immoral in our hearts or in our actions and so on. And the grace of God came to us, found us there, brought us to himself, reconciled us to him, forgave us of our sins, justified us by faith, began that work of sanctification in us, seeing that God has given us such grace through his Son and such precious promises in the gospel, then let us then be quick to respond to the promises of God, to respond in full obedience and submission to the Lord and to render service to him with all that we are for his glory, for his grace, by the working of the Spirit within us. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that your grace is so great that it comes to, comes to people like Jacob, that it comes to people like us, finds us in our sin, and makes us new. Lord, we pray that as the recipients of such promises and such grace, we would offer ourselves to you to serve you completely with all of our hearts, with undivided hearts and wills. Lord, we recognize that so often we are divided. We pray that that would cease, that we would give ourselves wholly to you. We ask your blessing and your help. In Jesus' name, amen.